Um, thank you all so much for being here. And I was just talking to McCole, and she said, I hate the timeliness of today, today's forum. I could not have said it better. It's just bad I, that we have to do this, but it is something that we have to do. And thank you all for being a part of this conversation, this so important conversation. And I heard um, Amanda and Dan say, we're already planning a part two. So that's important. We're starting a plan. Uh, well, it's, it's bad, but it's, it's good that we already know that we have to have a part two of this conversation. So today's topic is Chicago at the crossroads, the future of community policing. Um, did I see Jesse Ruiz walk in the door? I thought I did. Hey, Jess. Um, I'm not going to read Laura's bio because is there anybody in this room by a show of hands who does not know her awesomeness? That's what I thought. And if you don't, go to the webpage. You can take a look at it. Um, I'm going to invite this award-winning journalist, um, Chicago Tribune and ABC7, to the mic. She's going to introduce the rest of our panelists. I see questions coming up. People, if you see our folks moving, it's because they're bringing Laura questions still. Um, this is kind of going to be happening in real time today. And uh, I see people still getting their, their uh, card in the fishbowl. So it's important. I'm telling you, it's good. So what they're doing down there. I am going to come down from here so that we don't, I don't make us any more late. Um, Laura's going to bring up the rest of the panelists. Everybody keep your eyes and ears open. I think we're in for a treat today. Thank you, Laura. Well, first of all, please thank you very much for not reading that bio. You know, you know how we we all have bios and we put everything but the kitchen sink in them, right? But that's not so you're supposed to read them. So thank you for not doing that. And, and you know, I have to I have to differ with you on um, on the on the bad. Of course, the, what what happened in Memphis is horrific. But if we need a wake up call, and it seems like we need a wake up call on a pretty regular basis, let it be. And so I think it's really important that we're having this conversation now. It was an important conversation before that terrible thing happened. But remember, that terrible thing has happened many, many times across this country and, and, and particularly in this city. So it's, it's time for us to get past uh, the things that have not worked and really begin to focus on the things that work. And that's hopefully what we're going to do today. And I'm honored to be able to share in this conversation. So first, I would like to ask all of our panels to come uh, to join me up here on the podium, and then I will uh, provide brief introductions for this in incredibly illustrious group of people. Uh, their bios are on the full bios are on the website, and you are familiar with min many of them in their work throughout the city. So I want to keep them the bio the intros brief so we can have time for the important part of the conversation. <clears throat> so as they come to the stage. No, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Just, I, will, I will start on my immediate right with McCole Jordan McBride, who is the advocacy director for the Chicago Neighborhood Policing Initiative. The initiative is a policing philosophy grounded in the principle that public safety is the responsibility of everyone who works and lives in the neighborhood, and that we are safer when we communicate effectively and work together.
Oh, your mom's here? Well, that's then we then we know it's an important conversation. Where's mom? Where's mom? Thank you, Rosanna. And Rosanna Ander, the next right next to Nicole, is the founding executive director of the University of Chicago Crime Lab and the University of Chicago Education Lab, which works to design test and scale data-driven programs and practices to improve the public sector's pro approach to public safety and education. Welcome. Rosanna. Andrew Papakristos is currently a professor of sociology and a faculty fellow at the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University. He is also the founder and faculty director of Corners, the Center for Neighborhood Engaged Research in Science. Don't you don't want to cut off his, his bio. And finally, Mike Milstein is the deputy director at the Chicago Police Department who oversees the Office of Community Policing, where he manages all positive non-enforcement engagements between police and communities. He also leads the Chicago Police Department's Civil Rights Unit, which includes its hate crime team and community liaison team. Mike Milstein. So, um, as I said, this is a very important moment, especially uh, for the city of Chicago. Uh, after what you, what you heard about in Memphis and so, and so many other uh, incidents of violence in the community, uh, it, 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 some people may be beginning to wonder if there are any real solutions, if there are any real answers. But this, the, the group that you're going to hear from today is going to tell you that there are, and they're all around uh, enhancing, bolstering, celebrating, promoting community policing. So I wanted to start by, just by asking each one of you, and let's, let's start with you, Nicole, um, is, why is, it, why is it important that we are having this conversation now, beyond all the things that we have said? What, what is the most important thing about why we're having it now, and what are the necessary ingredients of effective community policing? Um, thank you so much. Um, I think that in order to really have this conversation, we have to ground it in some kind of historical context. Um, in Chicago, we first saw some kind of structured community policing program put in place within CPD back in 1993 with CAPS. Since CAPS, um, in just, what, 30 years now, we have seen the funding shift, right, from what it once was to um, being very essentially devalued um, internal, externally, but more, important, more importantly, internally, right? When we shift funding from community policing, then we say that that is not a strategic priority for the police department. And... If it's not a strategic priority, then it also means that every officer that's coming into the community isn't first and foremost thinking every single action that I take will either push, our, push us towards good relationships with the community or push us away from good policing, I mean good community police relationships. So if you go forward to 2018, we see... This is post Laquan McDonald. This is um, the CPD is now facing or under, uh, undergoing a consent decree to really address the pat some pattern impact practices that most people in communities of color already knew and had been for a long time saying was happening. But now, 
at a very national level was being recognized in Chicago. <clears throat> so we have this connection of poor community, I mean, of the shift of community police relationships, poor relationship building and lack of trust within communities of color who, who arguably needed the most. And now we have a consent decree. And we also have community members that are fighting diligently for a community oversight board to make sure that community voice is centered in community in, in police po um, policy and that community voice is centered in how police show up in our community, but this time differently. This time within an ordinance to make sure that funding does not shift away from community input, but is firmly put in place. Then finally, we also have um, the introduction of a pilot of the Chicago Neighborhood Policing Initiative, which in many respects attempts to push the Chicago Police Department back to the original idea of community policing. And that is that community policing is not just the responsibility of a subset of officers, but it is the responsibility of every single beat officer that is working in the community to build relationships, to understand the needs of the community, and most importantly, to talk to community members to understand from their perspective what the challenges are and what the answers to those challenges are. And to me, that is at the heart of community policing and is at the heart of all, of all policing strategy. Thank you. And uh, I think I'm, if, if it's okay, I'll just, I'll just go, go down the line. Um, and, and, and of course, Rosanna, if you would like to respond to anything she said, but back to the, the basic question, why is this so important now and what are the necessary ingredients to make it effective? I mean, I think it's blindingly obvious why it's important now. I mean, Chicago is a city facing enormous challenges, both on safety in communities, but also the legitimacy of the government that is supposed to be trusted to help produce that with the community. And Chicago's not alone in facing that, that crisis. And I just don't think that we can get to the place that all of us want to be, whatever part of the city you're in, if we don't have faith in our government to work with us, to be transparent with us, to be, uh, you know, held accountable for what they're doing. Um, and I just think we are in such a place of crisis in our country right now in terms of the legitimacy of the role of police in our society. And I don't think that we're going to fix it by going back to 1980s style policing, which is crushing crime at the same time that you're alienating the very community that's suffering the crime and now suffering the mass incarceration. And so mm -hmm. I just don't think that we can um, do the kinds of policing or public safety in our country and in our city without having communities being fully uh, uh, at the table, helping to define what it is that they want from their government and in, in particular policing um, and being a, a partner in that, that work. And so I just think that, you know, um, you just look at what we're, what we're experiencing right now as a city and as a country, and it feels blindingly obvious that we need to get to a place where there is a whole different sort of relationship and power dynamic between our government and the, the citizens, the residents who most need a government to work for them. And would you, I mean, and would, how do you answer the question is, what's the main ingredient to, to make it effective? Is what you just said? Is, is I, I, I changing the power dynamic? Or I think there are a bunch of ingredients that are important, and it starts with um, being transparent, mm -hmm. being willing to, uh, 
you know, answer questions honestly, being willing to share information, being willing to come to the residents in the communities that are being served and asking them what they want from their government. What is it that they need help with? What is it that they're most concerned about? And work, you know, being transparent about what you're going to do in response and then being transparent about what's working and what's not working and also recognizing. And and look, I want to recognize that we're not only failing the communities that are suffering the dual harms of gun violence and mass incarceration. We're also failing the officers that are being fed into a broken system. Mm -hmm. Like they are not happy. And so it starts with, you know, really kind of redefining what that role of police is um, and how it relates to other parts of the ecosystem, as well as, um, you know, making sure that there are true and authentic mechanisms to get community voice. And again, People talk about community as though it's monolithic. There are lots of perspectives, and we have to have ways to hear the variety of perspectives, and then we need our government to do its level best to be responsive to what residents are asking for. Okay. And and there, every, and, and there are a lot of different definitions, or a lot of people have a, a lot of different definitions and perceptions of what community policing is. And and, and Mike Milstein, I think I, inter, I introduced you out of order. My apologies. But you, you, you're running the community policing uh, uh, program at the police department now, how would you define it and how would you respond to the, to the issue of what are the crucial ingredients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I thank you for inviting me and inviting the department to be here today. Um, you know, we always try to define community policing first and foremost as a philosophy, um, a philosophy that um, is actually both defined for us in the consent decree and required that we incorporate into all of our community policing strategies. Um, but one that we've also tried to expand on and also incorporate into our own um, mission and vision within community policing. Um, in our office in community policing, we have that vision that every police officer on the Chicago Police Department should and, and must be a community policing officer, meaning that they should be able to go out there, engage communities in a proactive and positive way um, to do problem solving, to do the work the MPI is doing, to do um, you know, basic day-to-day um, procedural justice and, and positive engagement. So we try to incorporate that philosophy across the department into many different strategies. But um, to kind of go back to the other question about what is an ingredient that is needed, um, I think community policing is also a set of different programs and initiatives and efforts that help to support that philosophy. Um, you know, things like NPI, things like uh, CAPS, um, when it was first started in the 1990s. Um, we have now a crime victim assistance program. We have a civil rights unit, all sorts of things that are designed to um, bolster up that idea that um, community policing has to be a positive way that we are engaging with communities, helping to address different challenges, different needs at the community scene, um, and giving the community a voice in policing strategy. So really having an effective community policing strategy that is um, designed to create those different opportunities um, to work with the community, to bring the community into um, our process, um, I think is really crucial. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot because because you you represent the police department, and there's been just just today there's been some some uh, some a critique of of the police department and how it functions and our government and how it functions. What would you say are the cha- what are your challenges? What what could you be doing better? Or what would you like to be doing better if you had more resources? If you had more uh, time, some more support? What, what how would you like to improve? Yeah, I think a big piece that we're always looking to improve on is community partnerships. Mm-hmm. I think we recognize that police 
um, cannot do this work alone. We cannot address the root causes of crime. We cannot address the root causes um, of challenges in our communities. And so we need to be able to work with different community partners, all of you all who are really doing the hard work in the communities, um, to figure out how can we make a difference. You know, a big piece of community policing um, is also how do we address violence um, and how do we address violence in a public, in a uh, community-oriented way. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, really the need um, for us to be able to work co- uh, collaboratively with the community, with our community partners, to try to make that difference there. And what do you mean by how do you address violence? Uh, by addressing the root causes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, you know, uh, police officers are not social workers. We're not mm-hmm. school counselors. Um, but there are many community organizations across the city who are doing that kind of work. Um, that if we were able to partner with them um, to figure out how we can make an impact on some of those root issues that are creating the violence in the communities or that is leading to violence in communities, um, I think that's an area that we need to be um, a little bit more strategic and mindful of. And so, so that that's, that kind of relationship is partnership is not really happening right now. With, it, with, in some places, yes. In some yeah. places, I think we're still trying to you know go you know figure out what that looks like. Well, I'm sure I'm sure McCole might have some suggestions. For that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get back to her in a second. But I, I want I wanted to bring Professor Papa Christos in just to get uh, your perspective why this is important and what are the um, uh, the key ingredients, particularly around based on some of the research that you've done on this issue? So I actually would, would plus one basically everything that was said. I mean, we keep returning to this issue of community policing. And, you know, it started here in the 90s when NPI, just to, again, context, we talked about what's happening today, you know, with the funeral services that are going on. You know, NPI started after the video of Laquan McDonald's released, before Jason Van Dyke was sentenced, and Adam Toledo and George Floyd were still alive. But at each one of those moments, we came back to this issue about something between the relationship between the community and the police, right? And at those moments, the social contract is frayed, torn, destroyed. People feel it viscerally, as they should. But what we come back to is something, and Rosanna had said it, Nicole had said it, you know, is it trust? Is it cynicism? At the same time of not wanting to be afraid, right? And those two things actually exist at the same time, right? You can fear... You know, you can have be fearful for your life in many situations. You know, mass incarceration, Rosanna, mass, mass incarceration, of course, the, the gun violence, people being having a safety gap in their own communities, and then also thinking about what that means from feeling fearful of the state or cynical of the state. But yet, time and time again, and it just doesn't come just from the police, which I think is one of the important lessons we're learning from our partners that are sitting right here and some that are over there, is that there's a desire to have a working relationship in the maintenance of public safety, including with the police, but extending to the broader violence prevention or civil infrastructure that people are developing. And it's changed. It's not, you know, it's not 1992. Mm-hmm. We have cell phones. We have cameras. We have a 311 service, which, by the way, didn't exist in 1992. So you used to go to the beat meetings to get that graffiti off. Well, you don't have to go to a beat meeting to get graffiti taken off, nor probably should you. And so all those developments are changed to think about where are we in 2023 and what does rebuilding or repairing or building for the first time faith in an institution? And again, we talk about the police, but it's the state. We're talking about the state. It is the armed presence of the state. Uh, and people, you know, have lots of opinions about it, which I think is the other thing. And how do you do that in a representative democracy? Uh, well, so based on your research in 2023, what are the what do we need to be doing that we're not doing going forward? What are the, those ingredients that, we, that are missing? Well, specifically with community policing and CNPI, and mm-hmm. we've uh, we know we're the evaluation partner on MPI. We've been following it since 2018. 
Um, we followed just, and this is important to understand where this is coming from. You know, we followed the officers that were involved and the residents that were involved, and we've interviewed them over 200 times since January of 2019, pre-COVID to today. I think we're still doing interviews. I can look at our team. So one of the things that we see is that the folks involved, including the officers, this is what they want to do. This is why they became police officers, or this is why they want to engage. At the same time, they're becoming more critical of the program of the city, of the Mm -hmm. police department. And so the two things I think, you know, to to answer your question, one thing we really need to do, and I've heard everybody say this, is it it can't be a program. Look, we need lots of programs. We don't, I don't think everybody's gonna be like, yeah, no more programs. But it actually does need to be a philosophy. I do think part of the reason it keeps coming up now, it's it's actually, you know, almost a a battle for the soul of what we want policing to be. And, you know, I, I appreciated your comment as well. You can't do that without sustained relationship with community organizations and other institutions. The police should not be a poverty reduction uh, institution, right? They should have a specific function. We should know what that is. And then I also think the other element, Laura, to give you one more question, is where I'll use the word, again, there are other experts in the crowd, accountability. Is it on the front end? Is it on the back end? And what happens in the middle? Right. And so I think what we've seen in Memphis, of course, is very quick turnaround in the releasage of the footage and firing of officers. And that didn't happen, you know, with five Lepon years ago McDonald, with LeBron right. McDonald. That's all good. But that's all back end accountability. Now, those officers, some of which were involved in failure to report use of force complaints. Right. And some of our other work has looked at patterns and practices, again, to use those language. What can we do on the front end? What can we do on the recruitment side? What can we do on the accountability side? So I think accountability and I think philosophy would be the two main things I think we're seeing emerge. And, and as you said, it, it has to it has to be in, integral to everything that you do. And the police department does it can't be just a little program or even a big program over here. A- absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Let's just be really honest in this room. It's a weird room to feel like be really honest in. There's like 600 no, people it's a good, in here. It's a great room. <laughs> but I can tell you, you know, have worked with um, street outreach organizations in Chicago. For a long time, they wouldn't say they wouldn't work with the police, right? Now, but when they said they wouldn't work with the police, they'd be like, who are you texting? Oh, I'm texting Sergeant Tony. Why? Because he's cool. I'm like, oh, okay, that's good. But what is that about? That's about a positive relationship they had with a particular commander, or a particular officer, and we're actually seeing that start to change. Now, it's all based on leadership and networks, like who's going to be in those spots and and what they have. And that's always a challenge in an institution of policing where you have high turnover in leadership and sort of, uh, you know, different sorts of problems within labor in there. But, but what it points to, again, is that people that are on the ground doing the work have these relationships. We can learn a lot from those relationships and think about a path forward. And we don't want to police like it's 1992. We shouldn't. Can I add to that? Um, mm-hmm. I think just to piggyback off of um, what Andy is saying, um, I think another area that we haven't done a great job of is um, uh, learning from our mistakes and learning from our failures in the past um, and identifying how, you know, what we may have done strategies, you know, years ago have gone wrong and how can we improve on them. But also to take it a step further, it's identify and talk about um, how those failures may have had an impact between the police and the communities mm-hmm. um, and some of the trauma or some of the um, negative impact that has come from our failures in the past um, and trying to identify, again, how can we try to rebuild or build new trust between police and communities? I think a lot of it starts by learning from our mistakes. That, Absolutely. That, that's Go key, ahead. And I think that that's one of the immediate responses I have, right, is you can't particularly, a lot of, I will, you know, not to put you on the spot, but, you know, 
I feel I like there'll be saying, a lot this, like, today. <laughs> you can take it. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, and I completely understand you, CPD is struggling, right, in some communities. And I would imagine that some of the communities that you struggle the most with building those relationships are the ones who have also been the most deeply impacted. Right. Right. And so at what point do we actually say, you know, we have to start investing not just as CPD, but as a city as a whole in these communities and stop breaking the trust that, you know, one could even say have wasn't even built from the, in the beginning. Right. And so we have to start thinking critically as a de- CPD as a department and how they're showing up, how transparent they are and making sure again, not to continue to echo this, but it needs to be in an echo chamber that the community is the, is, should be the standard, right? How are we impacting community? How will this decision, how will this unit that is being put together to respond to the community, how will the community feel about this? Is this what the community wants and needs? And how do we make sure that we're not having consistent unintended consequences or intended consequences, depending on, you know, your perspective, um, to make sure that we are actually creating communities that are thriving in partnership with everyone and not just some uh, the state coming in and imposing on that community. Is there, are we expecting too much from the state, from the police department to... I think that the list of things that you just laid out make a lot of sense and very compelling, but are we asking too much for a government agency, the police department, Mike's uh, agency to do that? Absolutely not. We're asking for transparency. Mm -hmm. We're asking for accountability. We're asking for, if you are, if you do try some, we're not asking you to stand still and not try anything, but we're asking to make sure that the community is a part of those decisions and being able to say, yes, this will work because guess what? Community members are experts in their experiences and in their community. And so if they're experts, they should be at the table to say, you know, this could work. Or if you try this, make sure you look out or um, or plan for this so that we don't have this unintended consequence because they see from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. We're asking for communication, transparency, and accountability will naturally come with that. Mm-hmm. That's not asking too much. I think that's the basic thing that we should have. Can I Jose, answer please. that question and say I agree with everything that Nicole said, that we, we, it should not be too much to expect transparency, accountability, partnership, um, willingness to to learn and, and, you know, the the fundamental job of policing should be a problem solver in partnership with the community that's called you in um, or that you are in to solve that problem. Where I would sort of add an amendment to what she said is I think as a society, we have sort of abdicated responsibility in a lot of other areas. So the default response is the police are supposed to be the problem solver of problems that they have no business solving. And the community knows that. And they know that. So, mm-hmm. so I do want to sort of acknowledge that we are both failing residents that need a government that is responsive, accountable, effective, all of those things. But we're also failing officers when we are asking them to solve problems when all they have is a hammer and not everything is a nail. Right. So we do need to recognize that. Can I just say one yeah, quick sure. thing to that? I think that's also why I said that it has to also be city leadership. This all comes down to leadership. Like, my, my concerns about where we are as a, as a city, as a country, has 
obviously it has a lot to do with individual decisions of officers on a day-to-day basis. They have to be held responsible for individual decisions. But we have to hold systems accountable for how we are recruiting, how we're training, how we're identifying not only the, the officers that are responding to our community, but all the social networks and the social fabric of our communities that has failed year after year, decade after decade, to put us in a position to lean heavily on the police in the first place. Yeah. So what about, so okay, and then I want to get Mike in here because I want you bring up training and recruiting, and I think that's a really important piece of this. And just to build on that, yeah. things as simple as really understanding how officers are being deployed in, in communities. I think when you look at the data on the response times to 911, it cannot be good for communities when they're waiting as long. If there's a, you know, level 1A emergency and it's taking officers a long time to get there, it's also not good for the officers when they're all they're doing is responding to really, really tragic incidents over and over and over again. I don't think they're going to come to the next call in the best headspace. So I think there are some really important basic things that I think are a part of the broader kind of effort around how we hold our police department accountable. So, so thank you. So, so, so Mike Milstein, um, what are there, are the resources there? We heard about recruiting training. There's a ton of things in the consent decree that, mm-hmm. that are required um, to talk a little bit about what concrete programs that, that, that you're engaged in that aid this cause, but, and, and, and do you have enough resources? Is it realistic when we're losing, well, we lost a thousand police officers yeah. this year. We, we don't even have, have enough for basic patrolling. Talk a little bit about that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the recruiting. I mean, yes, I think the, the vision that we're moving forward right now is that we want to have it in more, a more diverse policing force. Um, doing a lot of um, outreach to uh, minority communities, trying to get more diverse uh, members join the department. Um, I think in 2022, we um, hired a little over 900 officers. So we're trying to continue trying to um, uh, make up for some of the losses in the ranks. Um, but I think, you know, while it's great to have a more diverse police force, it's not we, we shouldn't expect that just having more diverse officers is going to mean more procedurally just interactions. We Look see what that. happened in Memphis. Right, we see that in Memphis. And so I think training is another huge piece of here is, um, and uh, you know, one of the great things with the consent decree is that we're mandated um, by, by a federal agreement that we have to do training. We have to do procedurally just training. We have to do constitutional policing. We have to do community policing every single year um, for all officers across the department. Um, Training is, is never a bad thing. We want to include increased training. We want to make sure that we're actually bringing community partners into training. Um, it's one thing is for that, is that done cons- on a regular basis. Community uh, in terms of the training programs. We've done it before. We've done it with our community policing program, and we're trying to find ways to do it more often. Um, but basically, the idea is that you know when we have training around, um, say we are going to be having a training on how officers should interact with uh, the transgender community. We should actually have members from the trans community part of those trainings with officers. It's one thing to hear that training from an officer, but it's a whole completely different Mm -hmm. uh, meaning when it comes from a person of that community. Um, So training is a big piece. And then, of course, you know, going back to the accountability, how do we hold officers accountable to making sure that they are actually executing the work based on the training that they're receiving? Okay. Rosanna, now you've you've done a lot of research and and looked at other cities and and, and some of the work they've done. Are there lessons that... What, what have you learned from, uh, particularly in Los Angeles, I think it's been a, a success. What have you learned, and, and, it, and, that, and is it applicable here? 
Yeah, I, I think let's start by saying there's no city in this country that has is A plus um, on, on this. I think that there are cities that are better than others and have put more resources into accountability, procedural justice, um, engaging residents and really kind of articulating what policing should look like in their community. And I think L.A. has done better than a lot of departments. It came under a consent decree. And if Charlie Beck or Bill Bratton or, you know, any of the folks who were there in the early days were here, they would say uh, they did not go willingly. It was initially some kicking and screaming, but it really did take buy-in at the highest levels in the department to model that this is for real. We are going to bring into our police department as head of constitutional policing people who spent their careers understandably suing this police department. We are going to put them in charge of the consent decree because we are serious about the changes. It took way too long, and I don't think we can wait that long. But I think there are lessons from cities like Los Angeles where you can make really, really meaningful improvements in the quality of your policing, the effectiveness, the accountability, and the trust. And when you see, as um, surveys are done in Los Angeles, trust for police has actually gone up significantly over the period of time, and gun violence has gone down. So we don't, it's not an either or, you can do both, but I do not want to sit up here and say that L.A., has nailed it. Mm-hmm. I think in this country, we, we do not do enough to really um, uh, have higher standards. We're an outlier in terms of, you know, how we recruit, train, and even what kind of education levels are required in policing in this country. And I think that's a real a real challenge. Um, I, I also just want to say on but, the... But before you leave, leave that also, can you give some examples of things that have actually worked? You, you say that trust has, <clears throat> has grown. And- yeah, I think bringing in people like Connie Rice, who, you know, is a civil rights attorney who spent her career making, uh, trying to force the department from the outside to make it better, and then sort of working hand in glove with department leadership to implement, bringing in people like R.F. Alakan, who, you know, to be are, head of constitutional policing, these with are Gary Chima, leaders in the department, oh. um, who, who are, you know, come at this from a, you know, they're brought into the department to actually be in charge of the thing that they were outside the department pointing to as being the biggest problems. And so, so I think, you know, uh, I, I think it really does require doing this not as a box checking exercise, mm-hmm. but for real. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. And I think even with our consent decree here in Chicago, we have the um, most number of paragraphs. So each paragraph is something that the department has to do. Yeah. We treat the paragraphs as though they're all equal. Certain mm-hmm. things in the consent decree are way more important and urgent than other things. And I would like to see our department putting resources behind the things that are first order important. Um, even Such as? Means, you know, I think there's a whole long list of things, but even just how they're allocating officers to communities, I think... Go ahead. I'll let other people speak. No, 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 no. <laughs> how, how they're allocating that, that's a, that's a really big sticking point. That, I mean, it's not just about the allocation, right? It, it is about the allocation, but it's also about the revolving door that community members seeing. So how do you expect community members to actually build a relationship or, and, and, and all, all, what happens a lot of times is that you have community members, going back to um, Andy's point, that have developed a relationship with a commander, with a sergeant, with a lieutenant to actually start building, you know, some level of trust. And then the next thing you know, with no no um, warning, they're shipped off to another district. And community members are like, but wait, what happened? We had such a good relationship. So it's not just about, we have to be able to allocate and put the right bodies in the right places at the right times. But we also have to make sure that we are thinking more critically about not 
tearing the fabric of communities by sh- making de- departmental decisions and shifting um, shifting resources without, again, taking the community into consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to say one very concrete example of a department that's done a good job or mm-hmm. improved on um, what we're doing here, New York City, they're, the way that they select their commander, that sort of level, it's a very robust process yep. that has as one of its um, uh, decision points is bringing in uh, the community council to interview the candidates to then weigh in on, and then the candidates have to put together, put forth a vision for that community that they're Mm -hmm. going to potentially be the commander of. If you're a commander in a community, you're the chief of that small city. And you have enormous responsibility and resources at your disposal and life, liberty, and death-related consequences to your decisions. And in Chicago, First of all, we don't do, and, and in most cities, I'm not just trying to pick on Chicago, in most cities, getting promoted to that level of leadership within a department is completely accidental. We are mm-hmm. not is selecting for the, the you know, there are some good people who end up in those positions, but it's quite by accident. It's We don't develop that cadre of leadership in police organizations. And then, you know, we move them from one command to another, right. and basically they don't know until the day before that they're going to be the commander, and they don't know anything about the community necessarily. So, and the community doesn't know anything about them. Andrew, yeah. I know you want to get in, but I want to get Mike in, because, yeah, Mike, you were nodding your head in some of this uh, in terms of the, the, the whole a stability question and the, and the moving around question is is that a, is that a big challenge for you and how and what do we need to do to fix that? Uh, yeah, I mean we hear it all from our communities all all the time that you know to Nicole and um, Rosanna's point that they just made a really great connection with their commander and the commander is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're trying to figure out how do we have easier handoffs when that does occur. You know what are some ways that we can try to address that? Um, we've had we've been hearing that um, challenge for quite some time now, and I, I think we're um, at a point where we're trying to identify. How can we start to make some changes there and um, make a better impact on that? Do, do what about the, her, uh, Rosanna's example of the of the commander selection process? Is that something that you that you think that uh, should be considered here? Is that something that would be workable in Chicago? I think we can look into it. I know you know we have the district councils coming up in um, the next couple of months. I know we'll talk more about that probably yeah. later today. So I think that is an area that we can definitely mm-hmm. look at and um, you know talk through. Okay. Andrew. As a Chicago, and I hate this neck, I'm going to have to say this next phrase, but let's just talk about Los Angeles just for a few more seconds. (laughs) And and to one of the things Los Angeles does is there's a career to being involved in community policing as an officer. And right now, a lot of the officers that residents really like working with or that are involved in these things, it's not a... it's a, they're not respected by their peers. There's not a clear path for promotion. And they conversely are going to stay in this job that they really, really like, or they're going to leave, or they're going to go to a different unit eventually because they want to raise and have kids and sort of all those things. But LA has a whole trajectory and path, which took a lot of work negotiating with the union, but you can make a career doing that type of policing. And right now what happens with, with an NPI and particularly what happened in CAPS as well, it's this kind of a, a limited thing for folks. You can do it for so long and then you get moved around. During NPI, they saw this, the beginning of the program, the cops were into it. They were really excited. They were feeling good about their job. Then COVID hit, then there were staffing problems and they got shuffled and they never went back. And then at that point, you know, you're three years into a career. And so that is something that is tangible. You can reward and promote the behavior you want to see as a department. Right. We tend to reward or promote guns or dope on a table. In most instances in CPD and arrests, right? This goes back to why it just can't be a program. If you are saying we want to promote the style of policing, you have to promote those officers into, into Rosanna's point, into leadership positions too, right? Not just like, oh, great, you're the community policing officer. Here's your plaque. 
now go back to work. It's like you need to think about that when you have your sergeant exams, lieutenant mm-hmm. exams, yep. and commander positions. And, and we don't, you know, inside the police department, that's not how officers treat the cops that are doing that work. They don't see it as real policing, and they'll say it. You know? and, and is that about the fact that they're not, the, as you said, Rosanna, the message is not coming from the top. Do, do we have, you said we need buy-in from the, the highest levels. We need buy-in from, that means the mayor, that means the police superintendent, that means the commanders, that means the deputies. Is that, is that what we're talking about? Do we have that buy-in here in Chicago? And if we don't, how do we, how do we make it happen? I think leadership matters. Um, and, and just, you know, to go a little bit out of character, I, I do want to sort of acknowledge how hard the job was for a, a person coming from outside of Chicago to take over a police department uh, in a city that he didn't know very well yet because he was brand new and then COVID hit. So I, I do want to have some empathy mm-hmm. for just how challenging that is. Um, but but. I, I do think, you know, and, <laughs> and you know, we also have a consent decree that is not being, um, you know, invested in enough. We're not putting enough resources behind it. So, so, and gun violence spiked. And so, so I think it is a challenging job. I just will leave it to folks to decide um, to, you know, to speak their minds about whether they're happy with kind of what they're getting in terms of ROI or impact out of, of, of their government and to make that decision. Um, but I, I do think that we do see when leadership is really bought into something like a Charlie Beck in Los Angeles into the importance of community violence uh, intervention organizations as a key partner. We've done a, a couple of events with Charlie Beck where he's basically given the CVI organizations more credit than he does his own officers for the huge decreases that um, Los Angeles has had. Mm. Um, but they are full partners. They, they right. play different roles, but they're working in partnership. So I think mm. modeling that kind of leadership at the top about what's important, what you're going to reward within the department and what you're going to not uh, tolerate um, matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, Nicole, I wanted to ask you a question, but go ahead and comment, and then I had a follow-up. Just quickly, I think it just goes back to prioritiz- prioritization, right? Where you put your money and where you put your people and how you promote your people says everything about what your priorities are. And, you know, if we are in a, in a situation within Chicago or, or pick your city where we are not making sure that promotions and movement and everything like that is rooted again in not just what you're able to accomplish and checking the boxes and guns and so forth, but how did you work with the community? How did you build relationships with the community? And more importantly, what does the community have to say about you, right? And so I think that, you know, going back to the original or earlier point about the commander and the turnaround, I just wanted to say that I think that we also have to be able to have, it's equally important for community members to be able to say, this commander is not working well with us and we need to be able to fit, have a voice and making sure that this district or this small city is working in the way that we as community members come together and say it should work. And that's not happening now in Chicago. Absolutely not. Can, can I can I make a, a positive observation though, mm-hmm. which is I, I really do think, and all of us have worked in and around policing, and we've seen examples mm-hmm. of great leaders, great officers. That there are people in this city and in, in this department that want this, that are hungry for this. Yes. So, so I don't think that this is asking them to do something that lots of people inside the department actually want. It's a massive bureaucracy. And it's, and it's, it's Mike, you know, when we had our, our prep conversation, you said it's a very, very complex organization and, and that's a challenge. As someone brought up the district councils that, that, are, that are, that are coming. So, McCall, I want to come back to you on that. And could you explain a little bit about what that's about and, and, do you have hope? What hope do you have for that in terms of how that might impact uh, community policing in the future? So 
the ordinance to create the community commission, um, it's, it's complex. So I'm going to try to bring it uh, really, really short. We have a community commission right now um, that community members across the city fought for. And this commission, going back to the question about front-end accountability, that's what they're there for. They're there to make sure that a lot of the questions and a lot of things that we're grappling with right now becomes a very real part of the conversation and accountability measures for the department to make sure that we are actually getting the right policies in place, that we're getting, getting the right training in place, and that the police department and all of the public safety ecosystem in Chicago is being responsive to the community in a way that they should be, but then also that community voice is rooted in the, the, the direction of the public safety um, ecosystem. Well, then we have district councils that go vote. They have uh, elections on um, February 28th, and there will be three people elected for every district to actually be a liaison between the community, the officer, I mean, the district leadership, as well as the commission. Let's be honest, in a city as, as large as Chicago, mm-hmm. seven commissioners cannot possibly have their eyes and ears and a pulse of every single community in our city. But that's where your district council members come in, into place. These are people that are running for to be these liaisons, to be able to hear the voice of the community and be able to, in real time, address concerns that either is at a very local level with the district leadership or is at a higher level um, within the city with the commission and being able to lift up those concerns so that we are actually having um, a police department that is more responsive to community needs. So I don't think that there's a lot of uh, knowledge and and. and uh visibility of this this election. This, they're going to be elected at the same time as the mayor and the yes. alderman on, on February 28th. Yes. What, if people want to know more, how do they, how do they engage and find out who these candidates are and, and make sure that they, they educate themselves? And do you have recommendations on how folks in this room and anyone else can do that? Um, yes. Yeah, so you can definitely, I believe all the information about the candidates are, is on the Chicago Board of Elections. So you can find out for each district who's running, what they're about a lot, you know, I'm very, I'm very impressed and, and grateful for the amount of work that I'm seeing community members put into running for these positions. They have policy positions. They have Mm. long time, you know, been working in the community on these issues and they care. And so what, no matter what district you live in, we have people who actually want to be able to have a voice in this, who are running and who are really putting all the effort behind making sure that you know as a community member who they are and that they can earn your vote. And I think that it's important that in the same way that we research a mayor or alderman or anyone else that we go out to vote for, that we research and we understand who is running for these district council uh, positions because that the, the, the life of this will be in how we put into these positions mm-hmm. and how they work with the community. What, what are the terms um, the term for the district council members are four, is four, four years. years. Okay. And for the commissioners is four years as well, but it will be staggered. Mm-hmm. I am not Adam Gross, so I can't remember exactly <laughs> um, the staggered process, but I do know that we have a new set of, inter- um, right now we have interim commissioners and we'll have um, a permanent set of commissioners in place by next year. Okay, well, we have to do, educate ourselves on this because it sounds like it's a very important reform that we need to pay attention to. I have a couple, uh, many questions from the audience. We, we're not going to be able to get to, to them all, but I have a couple that I want to, 
uh, check here, and then um, I have maybe have one one or two final questions for the for the panel. Deborah Bennett, uh, where is Deborah? She's a longtime uh, top leader at the Poe Brothers Foundation. Thank you, Deborah, for your question. This is very fundamental, and it touches on what we've already been discussing. But let's let's go back to this. Why should Black communities want to develop and improve relationships? with an institution that continuously shows itself to be illegitimate due to the way it polices black people? I'll go. <laughs> I think that the, it's really, to me, I think that that's reverse. I think that the police should want to build relationships and earn the trust of community members who have been impacted the most. We all know, and I think it's well, well stated, that the police cannot, should not, and could never be able to keep our community safe by themselves. We don't even want that. We want to be able to make sure that our communities are thriving and we want our government, the government, to be able to see us as partners and experts in how we should be policed and what happens in our communities and in the, in the social fabric that is there. And so I think that the onus is really on city government as well as the police department to want those relationships because it's more valuable to them than not to have them. But you wanted to... I'll agree wholeheartedly with, with Nicole. Um, she's absolutely right. We, you know, we can never expect anyone to come to us expecting anything. We really, it's on us, on the city, on the police department to go out to the communities, to meet people where they are, um, and to try to build that connection, that relationship, and um, to see how we can work together. Um, I wholeheartedly agree. Well, how do we make that happen? That sounds like a huge, <laughs> yeah. huge task. I also just want to say, I, mm-hmm. I think Deborah's question is, is important, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we should start with the premise that... You should. I mean, I, I think that we really ought to be looking at different ways of getting to the end goal of safe, healthy, vibrant communities. And, you know, if there you know, are ways to do that that don't involve police or involve less and less of police, I think that also should very much be on the table um, because I think it is there is a history here that we have to acknowledge. And, um, you know, so so I think it's it, it you know, I think. I agree with what Nicole said fundamentally that it's on government to earn the trust of the people being governed. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think we should be thinking very expansively about what the option set is to get to a place where we have healthy, vibrant communities without the harms that come from, you know, all of the sort of things that we've seen from the wrong kind of um, government um, activity. And, and so I just I want to acknowledge that. Okay. And, and I would just add, you know, recognizing I'm a white dude who's read a lot in this space, but like the black community in Chicago has had a very complex agenda for public safety since the 1880s that has involved reforming, reestablishing the police and everything else. And what happens, and this is why it's so critical at this moment, is every time crime goes up, the default is the law and order policing rhetoric. And so, and again, the black community in Chicago has been vocal about what they want in those moments. And they usually only get one thing and it's usually more policing. So I'm glad that we're having these conversations and we need to have those conversations. There's a great book by James Foreman, Locking Up Our Own, if you haven't read it, that talks about how that played out in the 80s in D.C. And it's one of those things where I think listening, if I, you know, to what I mean here, I mean the institutions, listening to what Nicole said and thinking about, like, what are we going to then do, which I think is kind of what we keep coming back to these issues. We want to do something about this relationship. By the way, I'm avoiding the way po- word positive relationship, if you haven't noticed that. Working relationship. Mm-hmm. For any of you that have relationships, some of them are not always positive. Some are, are, are functional. And so I think we need to start there 
um, I was not talking about my marriage, you know, I was talking about <laughs> other relationships. But, but I think like there's a relationship there. Communities realize this. It gets complicated and there's not one solution. And so I think at this moment, that's what many of us, I don't want to speak for, for everybody, but we don't want to just go back to moral law and order. We don't want to go back to stop and frisk or stop and frisk under another name. We know, you know, we don't need another study to say mass incarceration is horrific. What we need to do is figure out and listen and think about what we can do and innovate, by the way, which is the other thing we can't do. We need to not right. be afraid of innovation, trying new things. And it's hard to innovate when you're when there's a lot of fear and when you're scared, it's the hard. The lock up mentality is dominant. Nicole, you're going to say something? Laura, I just wanted to make sure that we bring it to the conversation, even though we don't have time. So I'm sorry to open up Pandora's box. But <laughs> what we are not talking about is the um, the contract. Right. Um, and. The, a lot of times the things that are happening within the police department hides behind, oh, well, we have a contract. Mm-hmm. And that contract is not um, transparent. It's, the process isn't transparent. I know that when we were fighting for um, for the commission, there was another set of uh, community members who were fighting very much so to make sure that we can have more visibility and more say into how the police contracts are negotiated and what's a part of them so that that could not be another cover. And I think that we have to be able to continue that conversation and make sure that's brought out into the open so that a lot of things, so that we can't hide behind and not we, and I also mean that police officers themselves sometimes don't benefit from what's happening in the contract. And so that has to be a real, very real part of this conversation as we talk about reform in Chicago. Can you give us a couple of examples of things that are in the contract that are, uh, that are challenging? We can go back to the idea of um, the, the revolving door, right, and how officers are put into, um, put into the district or how they can, you know, leave the district, that's all a part of contract, right? Even to the point of, you know, how um, how promotions are, are, are done and how we can actually implement into the promotion system or make community policing a real pathway to a, a sustainable um, uh, career within the Chicago Police Department. That is all part of contract negotiations, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that if we start really looking at those kind of things amongst a, a, a host of other things. These are, you know, places within a contract that should be out in the open and that at, at minimum, community members should be able to have some in, insight on. Rosanna, is this, are there other cities that, that, that uh, are more transparent or more engaged with community around contract negotiations? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, Again, Los Angeles, I think, does a, a better job on that. But I, I think it's um, using that as a fig leaf for why we can't change, I think, is, is you know, a problem. And I think we need to sort of really get under the hood of the contract, understand where the problems are. And I think even things like some of the discipline process, you know, for officers, it's it's not a very fair, effective, expeditious process. I mean, there's so many things that are, you know, I think there are so many things that are really win-win, better for the community and better for the officers. And we have this sort of, you know, it's the police against the community or the community against the police. And I think on a lot of these things that we're talking mm-hmm. about, it's actually good for everybody. Would you agree, Michael Milstein, with that? And, and what's your view? I mean, is a contract a challenge for you in terms of, of your work? Uh, oof, uh, Come on, just, just, <laughs> uh, just among us. <laughs> um, there's always limitations around it, yes. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think there are always areas that we could look at to improve on how we are able to get officers to engage better in the communities, how we can make the system better for officers who are part of that. I think Rosanna's right. 
we have a lot of officers who really want to engage with the community, they want to do good police work, um, but sometimes they're challenged or they're boggled down by different um, systems that um, they have to kind of um, uh, maneuver around. So, so yes, I think there's always um, areas for improvement and, um, yeah. Okay. Um, I see the hook may be coming uh, soon, but, <laughs> but I, I, I do want to get in this final question for all of you. Uh, the elephant in the room is that we have, you mentioned the election, we have an ele- at least the first round of a mayoral election on February 28th and then a runoff. Um, what are the three key recommendations that each of you would make to whoever is elected mayor? What recommendations would you make to ensure that the city has a community strategy, community, community policing strategy that works for everyone? I'll start with you, McCall. So I, for the second time, I'm going to try to say this in one. I think that Right now, we have a lot of programs. We have programs everywhere. We have, you know, this program and that program and this public safety, yada, yada, yada. I don't know how much these programs are actually talking to each other or related or if we're actually taking any kind of stock into how do we make sure that all of these things are working integrally with with the community and, and making sure the community part is a part of that. Um, and I feel like it's, it's a lot of stops and starts. So whoever leads the city, it all comes back to leadership and focus and strategy. And right now I feel like strategy is not being very strategic. And, um, I think that that's, that's of most importance to actually, to, to actually address this. Yeah. I just think it comes down to who, who they choose for superintendent, whether they keep the current one or bring somebody else in. I think they need to articulate what their vision is, how they plan to make it a philosophy not a program, and what does that look like in terms of resources that are going to be committed to really engaging residents in designing what policing should look like in their community and in their city. And so whoever the superintendent is should really be held feet to the fire to articulate that. Specifically around community policing, they should be committed to doing what? There's the new superintendent. Yeah, I mean, they, they should articulate what their vision is. What does it mean to them? Yeah. What is it going to look like in practice? And not in sort of high-level terms, but like specifically, what, what does that mean in terms of how you're going to allocate resources? Mm-hmm. How are you going to know that you're doing a good job? Um, mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, I would say just listen to the community. Um, you know, I think so often, especially in uh, the last couple of years, um, you know, governments and police departments, they've kind of prescribed what kind of programs that they want to launch, what kind of initiatives they want to launch, because they think that's what the community wants. Sometimes it's completely opposite. They don't want that. It's uh, more harmful than it is good. Um, and so I think just being able to listen intently um, to what the community is actually asking for, what the community wants, um, and how we can work with them um, to um, provide that for them. So I'll just add a, you know, a plus one to the, it, it has to be a central part of the vision of the leadership, which means the budget has to reflect it. The officer allocation has to reflect it. Number two, I think we need to continue, and this is not directly about policing, but I think the mayor's office for public safety in that office needs to be staffed by professionals, needs to be stable, and it needs to have a nice budget because that is a locus where policing, and to my third point, community institutions can have that stable and beyond individuals, right? So the third thing I would say needs to happen with policing is they really need to develop trust not just with residents but with community institutions in the violence prevention infrastructure whether it's cbi organizations hospital-based organizations religious organizations they actually need to do more than between you know commander a and leader of organization b it actually that needs to be part of how we do business in chicago is we have to have formal relationships in those spaces and i do think there are state spaces like this this office and some of the coordination stuff that's happening 
is a natural home for it. And it bolsters public safety without triple, tripling or quadrupling down purely on a police budget that may or may not go to community policing. Right. So I think if it Great comes point. in these other spaces, other people have a have, have a it's, it's on the table. People see it. You have to talk about it. You have to justify it. And also that's where innovation is going to happen. Uh, I always worry about stagnation. We have to think about what's happening in front of us. We don't have time or we cannot <laughs> afford stagnation. Certainly. This has been an incredible conversation. A lot of wisdom, ideas and, and passion and power on the stage. And hopefully City Club will be passing this word on to whoever is going to be on the fifth floor in, in May. Thank you very much. My mama didn't raise no fool. I don't follow Laura Washington. Not even going to try. She's awesome. You can give her a round of applause. And now a round of applause for this awesome panel. I was saying to Tim Knight, there's so much academia and so much braininess around this conversation. And um, while we are admiring the problem, I think there are a group of people in this room who are now ready to implement change. And that literally gave me chills. I was saying to Dwayne Deskins and Shari Runner, who are two good friends of mine and two of the smartest people I know, honestly, um, I would love to be a fly on the wall to hear them after this post-conversation to hear what they're going to talk about. And I think I heard little triplets of that at every table. You know, people were talking about what they could do. So I'm sure Dan has about 85 bullet points in his phone, don't you? Yeah, I already know. And I'm going to hear about all of them probably 10, 11 o'clock at night. I got this idea. And that's how it should be, right? That's why we, that's how we fix um, or work on Chicago's ills. So um, having Joe Ferguson sitting at your table is a little intimidating. Just want you to know. I literally was like, would you like some coffee, sir? (laughs) Um, Thank you, Joe, for being here. We appreciate you so much. Um, Megan Hart, I think I saw you. don't know where you are, but I know I saw you in the room somewhere. Julie? Okay. I knew I saw her. Um, Just thank you guys all for being here. It just means so much um, to, again, have the people in the room to have the conversation. And Nicole and I have just become girlfriends. I don't know if you know that, but we're we're already good friends. Um, I am not going to delay the time any longer. Uh, Prepare for a part two. Get your tickets early. Um, Steven? Yes. Is your last name Robinson? Absolutely. Yeah, man, I probably can't have you pull this because you're probably related to me. Um, okay, I don't know. What's your name? Chris. Chris, okay, you're safe. I'm going to have you. I'll explain that joke. It's cultural. If you don't get it, I'll get. I'll explain it to you later. See, y'all got it, didn't you? It's like the third close for preachers. Y'all get it, right? Okay. Um, the... Uh, 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 the gift certificate is a $200 gift certificate to Chicago Cut. I am wearing a heart sweater because today is the first day of February. Um, there are reasons why I celebrate every day in the month of February. I don't know if we just started talking about that. But whomever gets this gift certificate is certainly entitled to take whomever they'd like to a $200 dinner at Chicago Cut. I mean, it's February, right? Did I say it's February, Dan? Okay. Um Patricia Carrillo. I have.
have. Oh well, I thought I had them. There are um, there are um, uh, uh, your annual. Each one of you will get your annual uh, membership to City Club. Um, I don't know where they are though. I thought they were under here, but Amanda will get them taken care of. Not to worry. Again, I cannot thank you all enough. This was awesome. Um, Laura's just bad. I don't have any other words to say. She's just bad. We are going to um, ask Brandon to come over to take a quick photo, and then I have a feeling there are going to be lines of people up here to um, talk to them, right? So if I could get Dan to get up out of his seat, because sometimes it takes him a minute. It just does. And we're going to do a quick photo. Thank you. Hey, Shia. Um, thank you all so much for being patient and going over time. We appreciate it so much. We are adjourned and see you on round two, if not before. <laughs>